Welcome to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my two great co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. Hello, Haley. And Haley Knott. Hey, Amber and Alex. Guys, I have some exciting news. We reserve the show to talk about other lawsuits that are being filed, legal actions, things that are, that are of interest to the audience. I'm considering a legal action of my own, and I think it might work better as a class action if you guys are interested in joining. I am considering legal action against the Gregorian calendar itself. Oh, I like oh, that. Okay. Intrigued. Who's the defendant in this case? Well, the calendar and okay, okay. Uh, and the people who enforce it. And we're listen, we're going to work out the details. But the point <laughs> is, my constitution, my body clock, call it whatever you want, it's ready to be done. But I wake up and I look at the calendar. It turns out there are several days left where there are work expectations of me. And I just, um, that's causing me irreparable harm. I, I, I need an injunction I believe yesterday. emotional distress, if nothing else. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I'm getting sick. Uh, I hope to keep that to a minimum uh, as, as this is an audio format, but. I really thought your angle wasn't going to be that we're near the end of the year and there's too much year left. I thought your angle was going to be those, every now and then you see those people who break out the math and talk about how if we just added the 13th month, they could all be even. What? Oh, my God. I really don't want to derail us this early in the show. (laughs) I've never heard that before. Yeah, there's some arguments. I mean, again, we're all too online, I guess. But there are arguments that if you add a 13th month, instead of each month being these irregular numbers, we'd have, we could regularize it and make it make more sense, which I'm into. I don't want to add more. I I mean, well, whatever. I don't know. (laughs) It sounds like our class is falling apart. Yeah, it sounds like this is. Um, yeah, these these issues are too individual. They're uh, individual. They, they, they can't be treat. Get the class treatment not necessarily. A of, not a lot well, of commonality. You no. know, uh, guys, since we can't make this lawsuit work, let's talk about some other lawsuits that are making their way through courts. <laughs> Good call. In, in today's show, we're going to do all hosts. We have three big news items to get into, and I just want to dive right into you know, something I love that I bring up on the show all the time, the Supreme Court. Got a big one that's just getting to the high court that I want to talk about this week. The Supreme Court agreed to take up a dispute over the abortion medication Mifepristone. It's setting up a battle over a lower court judge's controversial decision to block the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's decades-old approval of that drug. We have actually talked about this case before when it was making its way through the courts, If any listeners want to circle back to that and get a little bit more of the origin here than we'll be able to go into, it was all the way back in March. It's episode 289. There's obviously been no shortage of abortion-related cases, reproductive rights-related cases that have been top of mind ever since the Supreme Court issued the Dobbs ruling striking down Roe v. Wade. But let's get reoriented here. What exactly are the broad contours of this uh, case about uh, Mifepristone? Alex, you were exactly right to peg this to right after the Supreme Court handed down that controversial Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. Right after that, anti-abortion groups filed cases over medical abortion drugs. The groups are challenging Mifepristone, which was approved 23 years ago, so it's been around and approved for quite some time. The FDA has long said the drug is safe, it's effective, uh, millions of women have used it. But the groups say it is, in fact, dangerous, and the agency basically never should have approved it in the first place. The justices said they'd review the case after entreaties from basically all sides. The FDA, the distributor of Mifepristone, and an anti-abortion group all petitioned the Supreme Court. 
At the lower court, a Texas judge had effectively ordered a halt to sales of the drug and maintained some restrictions on access. That judge said Mifepristone was, and this is a quote, ultimately starves the unborn human until death. So you can see that the language there was quite intense in that lower court ruling. Then the Fifth Circuit got involved and overturned a portion of that ruling. But its August opinion affirmed the judge's reinstatement of some old restrictions on Mifepristone from before 2016 that undid several FDA actions that had loosened certain restrictions on the drug and extended sort of the age limit of gestation that it would apply to um, a generic version of the drug, some other things that made access broader for Mifepristone. In its petition for review of the ruling, the FDA said that the Fifth Circuit decision would impose an unprecedented and profoundly disruptive result. They said the lower courts and the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, that's the anti-abortion group that challenged the drug's approval, that they haven't identified any other court decisions, quote, abrogating FDA's approval of a drug or limiting a drug's availability based on a disagreement with the agency's judgment about safety or effectiveness. So they are clearly highlighting here that this is unusual and unexpected, and the FDA says they shouldn't be able to do this. Meanwhile, the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine said in its petition that the FDA, quote, disregarded law, science, and safety in pursuit of a political end when it approved mifepristone. Well, as Alex mentioned, there are so many cases like this out there. But why is this one, you know, worth following? What are the stakes here? Yeah, I want to point out sort of two big stakes here and and why we're flagging it on the show while it's sort of in early stages of its Supreme Court journey. The case is going to be a huge one with implications for medical abortion. The, The implications are pretty clear here. It's a very could could result in a very stark ruling that could end the availability of that in, a, in large regard. And it's important to note that medical abortion has become the most common method of terminating pregnancies in the United States. So that alone makes this case worth watching. But additionally, healthcare providers, pharmaceutical industry people, really a, a lot of people involved in the medical field, have told the Supreme Court that if the court sides with the anti-abortion group that brought the suit— It will undermine the FDA's regulatory process overall, well beyond just drugs used in medical abortion. So this could be a real game changer for the operations of the FDA and what can be challenged in court. Now, when a cert petition is taken up, we are here on Cert Grand Corner. I'm phasing out the theme song for Cert Grand Corner. I've just that's that's a that's a decision I've made, especially in a case as serious as this one. But uh, in any case, They've agreed to take up the case, and as you said, they were actually petitioned to do so by people on all sides of the litigation, so I guess we shouldn't be surprised about that, and it seemed like one of those that was destined for the court's doorstep from the moment it was filed, but is there any early tea leaf reading to do here? What can we say about uh, what can we glean from what we know so far? For the sake of the gravity of the case, I will allow that we won't have the Cirque Grand Corner theme song this time. But this is an exception, not the rule, Alex. Well, we we could have a meeting about that, I suppose. But yes. So for purposes of tea leaf reading, not a ton we can do at this early stage. I mean, it's just the Cirque Grant. But the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear two consolidated cases here, but declined to take up a related challenge to the FDA's initial Mifepristone approval. One high court watcher told Law 360 that's actually a good sign for a advocates who want access to this drug to be widespread. And that's because the merits of the FDA's approval of the drug more than two decades ago will not be in question here. 
So that's a little bit that we can know at this very early stage. It it narrows the scope a bit of what the Supreme Court will consider here. But overall, the Smith-Pristone case remains really the most high-profile dispute over abortion access since we got that Dobbs ruling. So this is one that everybody should have on their radar in 2024. Yeah, I mean, if Dobbs was the the end of, you know, whatever, five decades of abortion jurisprudence, this it, it was always going to open up a new phase. And now, I mean, it appears we are diving headlong into the new phase. So we will definitely keep an eye on it. I wanted to talk next about, uh, we are back on the antitrust beat. You know, next week we're doing our year-end wrap-up and we'll do, I'm sure we'll do s- some Supreme Court talk on that. And it I'd have to crunch the numbers. It feels like there's been an awful lot of high-profile uh, antitrust cases. I guess we'll, we'll, we'll dig into that next week as far as trends go. But this week we are talking about the trial in the case brought by the game developer Epic Games, which prevailed in a closely watched antitrust trial against Google this week. It convinced a California federal jury that Google's app store, known as the Play Store, functions basically as an illegal monopoly that jacks up prices for developers and snuffs out competition. The ruling is a huge defeat for Google, not necessarily in monetary terms, and we'll get to that in a second. But if it's upheld on appeal, this could transform Google's entire app store economy. And the decision also comes down as Google is facing a slew of other antitrust lawsuits and other disputes that figure to heat up in the coming months. So the timing is also quite notable here. Alex, you're really right about how it does feel like this year has been sort of a deluge of antitrust activity. And to be quite frank, it's easy to lose track, especially since so many of the suits have been targeted against giant tech companies. So give us the rundown here. What do I need to remember? So we're talking about Epic here, and it was, honestly, as I was preparing it, it was very difficult to not snicker whenever I would write an Epic attorney or an Epic lawsuit, (laughs) because my brain is poisoned from like early 2000s internet speak. But anyway, Epic (laughs) Epic Games is known, I I think most people know them as the developer of the popular online game Fortnite, and Epic sued Google in 2020 alleging that the company has basically created a monopoly through its app store. As I said, that's that's the Play Store in Google parlance, which is effectively the only means through which to sell Android operating system apps. And Epic basically made this kind of surprising move to cut Google out of the revenue stream for in-app purchases. So like when you're playing the game, you buy a new weapon or a new skin for your character or whatever. That was going now straight to Epic instead of to Google. And Google booted them off the platform, and that was kind of provocative by design, and then Epic sued. And the key allegation here is that Google illegally tied together both the right to its app store and its billing service, which basically meant that developers were required to use both of those services in order to have their apps sold through the Play platform. And that arrangement also allowed Google to squeeze excess profits out of app developers when users would make those in-app purchases, and it would charge, Google would charge commission fees as high as 30%, which obviously Epic really objected to. They saw that as basically taking money out of their pocket. Epic also alleged that Google colluded with other developers to basically refrain from building any new app stores that could offer Android apps in a way that would have competed with Google, which which would be in violation of the Sherman Act. And basically, that that can get a little weedy, both in terms of antitrust theory and also, you know, 
if you're not really fluent in, you know, the way online gaming apps work. But it's a huge deal because Google's App Store represents a pretty small chunk of its revenue overall when you compare it to like its, you know, founding search functions and things like that. But it's very, it's symbolically quite important because it is, the App Store is kind of the gatekeeper to billions of, you know, Android devices, mobile phones, tablets, things like that. That is the, that is the central, that is the only place effectively that you can buy apps like that. And this is the first, real, this is the, the, the most expansive legal action challenging that entire business model. This is one of those cases that even though we have seen this deluge of antitrust suits against massive tech companies over various things over the past few years. This is one that I like specifically remember when it was first filed. And it's very exciting that it actually made its way to trial. I think I covered some of the pleadings over the years, but let's get into it. What went down? Yeah. Anytime a claim that's this explosive, like your entire app store is itself an illegal monopoly, goes all the way to trial you definitely take notice, and especially when you win on all counts, as happened here. And the trial provided a a rare glimpse into not only Google's relationship with app developers like Epic, but also about the inner workings of its app store. Though I will say the glimpse was probably not as comprehensive as the judge would have liked. At trial, an Epic attorney presented evidence and 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 a Google CEO even effectively admitted that the company does maintain a system for deleting texts and internal messages. Epic said that that was meant to be a tool for concealing anti-competitive behavior. And the judge found the evidence compelling enough that he instructed the jurors to basically infer that any deleted chats contained evidence that would have been unfavorable to Google in the case. So I thought that was pretty notable. The trial lasted about a month and the jury deliberated for only about four hours, which isn't that long when you consider they sat through a month-long trial. That's not always an exact science, but a pretty short deliberation for such a robust case uh, before finding for Epic on all counts. Like I say, they found that Google had acquired monopoly power and illegally maintained it through both its app store and its billing services. Google, for its part, has vowed to appeal, but it was a, it was a clean win across the board. So one thing I've noticed as we've been talking here is that, Alex, you haven't dropped any giant figures on us yet. And (laughs) I would have expected that because we're talking two companies that everybody knows. I mean, it's Google, Epic. This is ubiquitous. We're talking about where stuff gets into the app store. So what are we talking in terms of stakes? I mean, hit us with some numbers. Well, no numbers right now as of yet. Um, As I said, uh, I and I kind of forgot this when I was prepping it. I was following the story in the news. But it was a little bit of a surprise, even at the time, to learn that Epic did not ask for any damages or any financial compensation or remuneration when it filed the suit. It instead asked for basically, it was injunctive relief. It was asking for transformational changes to the way that Google runs the App Store. And now those details haven't been fleshed out. They had to first prove that there was an illegal monopoly in place. They didn't have to present remedies yet. There's going to be a separate proceeding on remedies which is supposed to kick off next month. We'll see how an appeal impacts that, but it is scheduled to begin next month. But in basic terms, it's fair to say that if this ruling holds, Google may be forced to alter its Play Store rules in a way that either allows other companies to offer competing app stores where you can buy Android apps, 
these rule changes could also make it easier for developers to avoid or lessen the financial cut that Google collects from in-app purchases. Now, this is also, as I said at the top, you may remember this is not the only current antitrust headache for Google at the moment. Like I said, they have vowed to appeal this case about the App Store, and that will be no easy feat. It is also currently defending itself against claims from the DOJ, the federal DOJ, and several state attorneys general in separate cases, uh, one of which surrounds its search engine policies. And we talked about that several weeks ago with Brian Koenig. And then also its advertising technology business, which is also a huge revenue stream for Google. So this is a huge loss for them, though not yet in financial terms, though if if these changes are, are imposed, it certainly will create a dent in their spreadsheet. But it's not the only thing. And I, I think we can say with certainty that Google's antitrust counsel is going to stay busy even as the calendar turns. Returning to New York City next month, January 29th to February 1st is Legal Week. It's the one week where thousands of legal professionals gather together to gain actionable insights that will help them restructure, rebuild, and reinvigorate today's law firms and legal departments. Featuring four days of tracks, masterclasses, keynotes, state-of-the-industry updates, and premier networking, Legal Week will bring together the entire legal community to tackle topics such as data privacy, discovery innovation, the future of legal AI, digital transformation, and much more. All of this will happen while offering deep dives into the latest legal technology. Secure your ticket today at www.legalweekshow.com. We talk a lot on Pro Se about what exactly is protected by free speech. We've talked about, uh, you know, the, the vehicle honking case comes to mind. And well, this week I have a a really interesting one involving a former big law attorney and a TikToker and some defamation. So let's get into that here. A former Greenberg Trarig patent attorney is in the midst of this pretty unique defamation battle with this TikTok influencer who the attorney says ran a campaign falsely accusing him of being abusive. And that campaign ultimately destroyed his career. Now, this is something worth discussing in and of itself. It's a very interesting case. But now we have gotten into this free speech territory. And they are arguing over whether those TikTok posts constitute journalism that's protected by free speech. The TikToker, of course, says that they do. He says, I am a journalist. This is journalism. The attorney really tore into that position in a filing this week saying that citizen journalist is a fictitious label that entitles this influencer to no special status under the law. I'm going to go ahead and say right here that uh, we are all journalists in this conversation. So we probably have pretty strong feelings about what it means and what the term is journalist. I want to get into all of that and what it means allegedly under the law, according to each side that's arguing in this case, there's a ton to unpack. So maybe we start with just who's the attorney, who's the influencer. Let's get to know the parties here. 
Yeah, to your point, Amber, this feels, this underlying question here feels very much like an argument between two blue check journalists on Twitter that (laughs) you're just like, I'm going to keep scrolling. Or an older and younger person, uh, Law 360 employees at happy hour. I'm almost positive we talked about this a couple of years ago, but in less stark terms. But yes, I take the point. Yeah. So the attorney here is Alan Kasanoff, and he was a shareholder at Greenberg Traurig until June of this year. Kasanoff filed a $150 million defamation suit against this influencer, whose name is Robert Harvey. And Harvey has about 3 million followers on TikTok. Fun fact, he was also the former media director of a personal injury law firm. So... He has a, a nice little legal tie himself. Flax strike back. Yes. <laughs> wow. We need to uh, workshop a screenplay to accompany that incredible title. Anyway, all of this centers on Kasanoff's really messy divorce from his ex-wife, um, who has since died. And Kasanoff filed for divorce in May 2019, claiming that his wife had been abusive both to him and their children. And the court agreed and eventually granted sole custody of the kids to him. And there were a lot of terrible underlying, you know, things that transpired during this horrible divorce case. Kasanoff says that his ex-wife was really mentally unwell and had harmed the kids in various instances. And earlier this year, she posted on Facebook saying that Kasanoff abused her And also that she planned to die by assisted suicide in Switzerland because she had been diagnosed with a terminal illness. Now, normally, you know, we wouldn't want to get into the weeds on on a social media post, let alone a social media post that is in the context of a very messy divorce. But this is kind of where this TikToker came in. Kasanoff, for the record, says that the post was pretty much full of lies. He had spoken with her doctor. She had not been diagnosed with any sort of illness. But following that post, this is where Harvey, the TikToker, came in. He published dozens of videos about the whole ordeal and accused Kasanoff of being abusive and using his leverage as a big law attorney to get sole custody of the kids. Harvey also told his followers to bombard the firm as well as one of the firm's biggest clients, Samsung, with emails and calls and social media posts about Kasanoff, calling for his firing and resignation. So that was the whole campaign that he was referring to. Quite a lot to unpack there. And, I, and, and uh, thank you for walking us through it, even though it's uh, obviously some of that's like quite unpleasant to talk about. Let's center back on the um, actual case itself. I I can glean from the sort of parade of unpleasant stuff we just heard about, but what exactly is Kasanoff alleging? It's a defamation suit, so um, we can probably intuit some of it, but what are the highlights there? Kasanoff claims that Harvey is just a guy who preys on vulnerable women, and he said that he even, that Harvey even allegedly helped his ex-wife write that Facebook post, and he says that Harvey made numerous defamatory statements about not just him, but also the judicial proceedings and the firm's involvement. He claimed that Harvey falsely said Kasanoff paid off custody evaluators and that the firm paid his divorce legal fees. None of that's true, according to Kasanoff. 
And, you know, on a personal level, he says that these videos have prompted investigations from Child Protective Services. They've caused him and his kids a lot of emotional distress. And he said he's also gotten harassing emails, voicemails and texts, even death threats. And ultimately, he was forced to resign from the firm in in the midst of all of this. This story really is quite overwhelming. I'm interested in what the TikToker said was his involvement here. I mean, I, I think we sort of nodded up top that he is alleging that he's doing this from a place of being a journalist. Is that what he's saying? Yes, exactly. Harvey filed a motion to dismiss, and he, in that motion, called himself a citizen journalist and said that Kasanoff is just suing because he didn't appreciate his reporting, which, you know, that's a position we as journalists are all very familiar with. But Harvey said that he uses his social media platforms to post video news content regarding specifically women who've suffered injustices in the judicial system. And he even described himself in this filing as the, quote, voice for women. So according to Harvey, like, this is his whole thing. This is what he does. He covers all these things on TikTok and YouTube and Instagram, and he is a journalist. We can sort of have a philosophical debate about whether, you know, doing this kind of stuff, and it's not really just about TikTok. I mean, it's, I think it's true that, like, journalism can take place on TikTok. It does all the time. But even beyond like like trying to figure out exactly whether this qualifies as journalism, it is important to know that in a defamation context, you know, there are certain protections afforded to the media, which usually relate to being able to dismiss this stuff at a, on a quicker timeline than like going through a whole like pleading stage and things like that. So it's not just some, it's not just some esoteric, like philosophical debate they're having. Kasanoff obviously doesn't agree that the guy is doing journalism with this. What is his uh, rebuttal to that claim? Yeah, he really got into the definition of journalism a bit here. He filed an opposition to that dismissal motion this week, and he said, look, journalists report on the news. They don't try to get people fired. They don't threaten people, and they don't ask their followers to harass people. Which, I mean... I could say that's true. That's true. I've never uh, asked anyone to harass anyone. Uh, I mean, honestly, if you're setting the bar for what makes you a journalist or what drops you below the bar of journalism, I feel pretty safe that like not harassing people seems good to me. I'm I'm into that as, as a dividing line. Yes, I think we can all back that. Kasanoff also noted that New York law allows defendants to mount a fair reporting defense to defamation claims, but that's when you're writing about general legal proceedings, not matrimonial proceedings. So not not when you're writing about this sort of divorce court debacle. And he said Harvey in this instance really acted egregiously and that Harvey's motion to dismiss in general is just incorrect all around, incorrect on the underlying facts incorrect on what a journalist is, incorrect on the applicable laws. So this is certainly a really, a really contentious battle that I'm sure Kasanoff is not happy that this has had to spill over into, into more litigation, but there's certainly going to be a lot for us to watch for.
We like to end our show with something offbeat. And Alex, I know just from our production meeting and sort of our setup for this week's show, you have one I'm going to enjoy. (laughs) Yes, thank you, Amber. You know, we spend a lot of time, sometimes in this space, sometimes other space on the show, talking about the bar exam. Right now, I'm here to talk about the bard exam because we're talking Shakespeare today, folks. Specifically, yes, the bard exam. Okay, it's wait. Not, yeah. Before you even get into it, and I, I can't wait to hear how Shakespeare is tying into us on a legal podcast. This is really going to make my day. This is Amber's dream. It is my dream. I would like to baseline it. Is everyone here Shakespeare fans? Yes? No? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was a high school theater kid. Who do you think you're talking to? Of course to you were. Yeah, hey, come on. Hey, Haley, <laughs> how about you? I, I feel neutral, I would say. I mean, I, re- I respect the, the works. I didn't appreciate reading them as literature in high school. You know, I was like, these are meant to be performed, Guys. not read. I hear what you all are saying. Yeah, that tied into theater and, and performed, not read. I hear all of that. I do want to disclose because I am so excited. I'm almost vibrating. Uh, <laughs> okay. That I took, I was only in college for three years, but I took seven Shakespeare classes, you guys. Wow. <laughs> um, let's get that, into whatever this Oh, man. Is. Did you basically minor? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I mean unintentionally, kind of. Holy smokes. Um, we declared I that. I had one every semester. Wow. Just, uh, you're, you're, you're like the Cal Ripken of, of, of taking Shakespeare <laughs> classes. Just every semester showing up for Shakespeare class. Okay. They were great. We'll, we'll return to that in a moment, but it will surprise no one to learn that obviously, you know, this is a, the legal profession is largely a writing one, and the references to Shakespeare pop up all the time, whether it be in legal briefs or in judicial rulings, things like that. And this week, we are talking about a case, an environmental case brought by the Michigan Attorney General, who is trying to shut down a natural gas and oil pipeline that traverses the Great Lakes. And right now, they're at the Sixth Circuit, and they're fighting over a pretty weedy issue over the venue for the case, whether it belongs in state or federal court. The company that's being sued is uh, a company named Enbridge Energy, and they are trying to move the suit from state court to federal court because, you know, it says that the state's suit from the AG is preempted by federal law, but the Michigan AG, Dana Nessel, said that no federal laws are implicated in her suit And the company is just trying to sort of concoct a preemption defense out of thin air. And she turned to the pages of, this is a high school staple, Romeo and Juliet, to underscore the point. This was in uh, a filing to the Sixth Circuit. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. As Juliet observed, one cannot change the true nature of something by calling it something else. Enbridge may give its preemption defenses a new name, but it cannot change their smell. Wow. Oh, Enbridge doth protest God. too much. Wow. Out damned Enbridge. Um, <laughs> the, I have a lot of questions here. First of all, what do you guys think a preemption defense smells like? Oh, I thought that wow. was strange. Especially in an environmental case. That's well, yeah, very evocative probably, there. Pr- probably not pleasant. Um, smells like so, chemicals. Yeah, I mean, I would kind of invite, before we talk about, you know, we don't have to fire off, before we get into our Shakespeare takes, the the Shakespeare takes sphere, yeah. if you will. Beautiful. We're, we're, we're in there now. Uh, what do we think of the, what do we think of the use here? Um, I think it's pretty remedial, if you ask me, putting aside the, the merits of the argument. Uh, this is, I don't know, I think a couple levels above 
Libya is a land of contrasts or something. It's, you I know, mean, the... as the person who was the most excited about this segment, who am I to quibble with how we got here and how we got Shakespeare into some court action? But I agree with you, Alex. This is not the most exciting or nuanced usage. Yeah, it's sort of a it's sort of like the most elementary Shakespeare play and one sure of the is. most elementary concepts articulated within it. Uh-huh. Um, That's right. The, and it's, you know, it's fine. Like you say, maybe, you know, beggars and choosers and all of that. But Amber, I don't want to belabor it too much. I mean, do you have any, you, I mean, you are, you are a scholar on this issue as I, as we just <laughs> now, learned four minutes like ago. I've, I've way over promised here, but well, keep going. Well, I mean, I don't know. Do you have, I mean, do you have any sort of, I mean, do you have a favorite, uh, a favorite Shakespeare work? Uh, and I don't know if it has any, I don't know, legal connection or whatever I did, for you. I did in college, um, presented a Shakespeare conference, um, a paper about <laughs> of course you did. various like, feminist readings of The Taming of the Shrew. Okay. Um, so I yeah. have a real soft spot for that one. Um, nice. I like a lot of them, to be fair. But I do think I like the Shakespearean stuff that you can interpret multiple ways. Yeah. And that, in fact, is what this quote in the case is missing. It's just, it's very straightforward. Yeah. And yeah. there's so much in Shakespeare that can be a lot more nuanced that you would think would pair well with legal arguments. Yeah, it's true. I'm a, yeah. I'm, a fan, I'm a fan of Taming of the Shrew. I was, as I said, I was a theater dork and I did a bunch of plays in high school and community theater as well. I only ever did one Shakespeare play and I was always sad. Ooh, I wanted, which one? Uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. I played oh, Nick Bottom. Oh, solid. Uh, yeah. yeah, pretty, that's pretty Let's standard go. high school fare. Uh, I was always sad. I wanted to, I always wanted to do more. Um, but of course this sent me down a little bit of a research. I, I wouldn't call it a rabbit hole. I did, I, I looked for about 10 minutes. Uh, you, <laughs> there, there's no shortage of Shakespeare sites in all of, you know, written legal history in the U.S. and in England. One of the things that, um, I mean, it, it pops up a lot. One, I wanted to highlight one of my favorites from just a couple of years ago. This is in the U.S. versus Bari. This involved a case. Um, there was a, a man who, who was convicted on terrorism conspiracy charges and served, and it was, it was related to circulating propaganda and literature ahead of these ahead of the terrorist attacks on U.S. embassies in 1998 in, uh, in Africa. And then in 2020, this guy's sentence is like winding down. There's just a couple, like a month or so left on it. And he asked the court for early release uh, because COVID was sweeping through the, the jails and he was older, he had asthma, he was obese, he had comor- uh, other comorbidities. And that request was granted by Judge Lewis Kaplan, who invoked the famous quality of mercy speech from the Merchant of Venice, where the heroine Portia is actually masquerading as a lawyer, and she is uh, asking the the moneylender Shylock to show mercy to the titular merchant Antonio, who's defaulted on a loan. And that one, I won't read the whole passage, but that talks about, you know, the power of monarchs, and, and it says, you know, his... His scepter shows the force of temporal power, but mercy is above this sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the heart of kings. It is an attribute to God himself. And earthly power doth when show like gods when mercy seasons justice. So the judge said, the earthly power of the United States should allow mercy to season justice. This is very evocative writing. The idea that like you mete out justice, that doesn't, 
that doesn't mean you rule out mercy. So the guy was given an early release for that. Alex, can you read Shakespeare at the end of every pro se? I really like it. <laughs> I even bungled that one a little bit because it's very <laughs> difficult to, uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to redo it because you see it warts and all here. I'm very out of practice <laughs> delivering, uh, delivering the bard, uh, certainly when it's written in iambic, but uh yeah, time to so get, time to get back out there, Alex. I know. It's I know. never too late to get in on some, you know, community theater production or. Well, I live in New York. Community theater is damn competitive here. That's so, true. Uh, you That's know, maybe, true. Maybe I got to go back home for that. But I uh, will yeah. say, I don't typically ask our listeners to send us stuff. You know, they do as things come up, but. I wouldn't mind if people have a favorite use of Shakespeare in a case or in oh, a yeah. courtroom. Uh, would love to read those. So if anybody has them, send them to the pro se team. By all means. Well, thanks a lot for that, Alex. Really appreciate it. Pleasure as always. And thank you, Haley. Thank you. We'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, and many contributing reporters this week, Jake Marr, Dorothy Atkins, Bonnie Esslinger, Matthew Perlman, Joyce Hansen, and Teresa Schleep. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, we'd love it if you left a written review anywhere you're listening. That definitely helps other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about, that's when you go to our website, law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.